0: hello folks welcome back i'm your host simon ward and this is the high performance human triathlon podcast where i can promise that you'll always hear a yorkshire accent and we will never have any adverts we chat with our guests about peak performance fitness health nutrition recovery longevity relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first triathlon set a personal best at your next race or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. Today, I have two guests joining me. Ian Dawson and Duncan Shea-Simmons are two triathletes who race together. Ian is a B3 visually impaired athlete and Duncan is his guide. In a few days time, they'll be racing for Team England at the Para Commonwealth Games in the PTVI category. It's super exciting for both as it's their first time competing at the Commonwealth Games. I've known Duncan for a very long time. We've been in triathlon probably about the same length of time. So firstly, we catch up about his triathlon career today and some of our shared experiences in the sport and then how he got into the guiding role. In the second half, Ian joins us for a three-way discussion on how it all works and there's much more to it than you might think. By the way, Talking of performance, if you've ever thought about entering an Ironman, you might be interested in a two-page case study I've written outlining the simple formula I've used to help hundreds of people just like you to excel at their first long-distance event. You can get your copy by clicking on the very obvious link in the show notes. Okay, enough of the rambling. Let's get on and chat with Ian and Duncan. Oh, welcome to the show,
1: Duncan Shea-Simmons. Hey, hi Simon. How, how are you doing, mate? It's, uh, it's great to have you yeah, on the show. Yeah, no, thanks for the invite, Simon. I'm really, really uh, happy to be on. Um, just enjoying some sunshine and uh, looking forward to a great chat.
0: Yeah, well, we've, we've been hanging around in triathlon for uh, pretty much the same amount of years, haven't
1: we? Yes. When was your first event, Simon? Mine was, uh, eight, I started in 188, I think. First, first event yeah. was 89.
0: Yeah, yeah I was '87.
1: I was 87. Yeah, okay. but you've, I think that's uh, it. We you sort of been a year ahead of me most of the way through our respective uh, careers, blazing the trail.
0: <laughs> ah, well, I remember you. I'd I'd post about doing a race, and then a year later, you you and Claire would go and do oh, it. So, oh, looks like yeah, yeah. looks like we're doing the same races as you because I did the um I did the Norseman, I did Ironman Canada. I think you went to that one, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. That's one, I, yeah. yeah Norseman, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Inferno. You went Inferno. to and did that?
1: Um, yeah, year after. Oh, I think I, I think I stopped following you once you started doing stuff like the marathon day Slab, And I thought, yeah, that's kind of, um, that's for crazy people. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. where our paths stopped diverted. I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, which which is surprising, really, because you're probably more of a runner than I am.
1: Yeah, although I'm not I'm not built for um for lugging loads, mate. That's definitely not that's not my skill set. So I'll leave the, the carrying heavy loads to the to the to the stronger athletes, shall we say?
0: <laughs> yeah, although I would say that you know everybody sort of talks about mouth and Disable with a bit of trepidation. But to be honest, it's just unless you're at the top end of the field, it's a big hike, really. Yeah. It's a big hike. It, it, it's a big hike in the heat.
1: Maybe it's maybe it's it's still on the bucket list there at, at the bottom corner. Cool so maybe we'll take it off one day.
0: Well, if you um definitely if you want to go and see a part of the world, you probably wouldn't go and see. I mean, you probably, mm. you know, you'd probably go on holiday to morocco and go to Marrakesh or to Fez or yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Um, do a day trip to the desert, but you see some places um, in that that you'd never go to, and, and you get to experience things even that the tourists wouldn't like. If you're walking through the desert in the middle of the night, and okay. you stop, you stop yeah. on a sand dune, and you turn your, your head torch off, and you just lie there. I mean, the, the stargazing's fabulous because there's no light pollution. Yeah, um, there's yeah. no noise at all, or, or you might get the sound of the wind whistling mm. through the sand which is quite unique um how how often in in the lives that we lead and the places we go to do we get the opportunity to experience that sort of solitude and silence yeah. and yes
1: and that's, and that's the same for me so in all, in all my um racing you know it's taken me to some amazing parts of the country you know the himalayas nepal um all over europe the americas of course and it's and it's just kind of exposing you to those situations that you maybe wouldn't find yourself in had, had you not been there through sport
0: yeah. So I've, I've, I mean, I realized, uh, you know, right at the very beginning that I was never going to be at the front of the pack and that's fine. You know, I'm happy with that. It's uh, it's more of a lifestyle thing for me. Um, I like riding my bike. I like swimming open water. Yeah, same, Um, I same like, time. I like setting myself challenges. I'll, I'll put up with the running just to get to the finish line, but <laughs> running's never been my favorite. And, uh, it's the one I'm, I'm not able to run at the moment, so I'm, I'm actually I'm not I'm not too unhappy about that one. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. Well, that's the beauty of there There's always plenty of other stuff to be going at. If one of them's not going so well, you can always focus on the other two. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm enjoying
0: gravel gravel riding at the moment. oh ah,
1: yes, yeah, gravel. Yeah, that's something I'm yet to get into, but um, I have to pass off the uh, the purchase of, a, of yet another bike, <laughs> um, which will inevitably mean the purchase of two bikes because every time I get myself something, I have to get Claire, uh, uh, my wife. Uh, something
0: as well so I mean that's that's what I've always admired about the two of you is that you're you're a you're the perfect couple you know you you sort of uh, um you know you both got this interest in triathlon mm. and you're both pretty good at it so you've been able to often well sometimes you've qualified to do the same world championship race at the same time haven't you yeah and um, I think yeah, you, did,
1: yeah. you, did, you did you did you do Kona once when you were both there We've done a couple of a couple of comas together. Yeah. Claire, Claire qualified first, um, I believe in 2014. I, I tried that year and failed. Um, and then we both qualified in 2015 and again. Uh, in 2017 so yeah we've done a couple of trips to Kona together. I, I th- oh yeah yeah yes
0: I, I'm just thinking I thought you qualified in 2014 and I think you did but you didn't get to go until 2015 because it was Ironman Wales wasn't
1: it? Correct yeah that's it so yeah the, the, the sort of perfect way really is to qualify the year before and then mm. you get the kind of um, the full choice of all the accommodation and uh, get in there early for the for the following year. Well um, and perfect. you perfect
0: yeah, you can plan your whole season around, yeah. around Kona, can't you? Rather, well, yeah, exactly. than, You haven't got to worry about
1: qualifying, yeah.
0: I, I always think that for those people who qualify at somewhere like, well, you and I have both done Ironman Canada, and that was because of the time of the year, that was almost one of the last qualifiers, but it gives you about six or seven yes. weeks. And if you're yes. if if you if you're coming back to the UK, you've got to get over that travel and the race first, and then you've got to fly back out to the other side of the world again. Yes, it's, yes. It's,
1: yeah, it's a, well, 2017 is a bit of, a bit more of a challenge for me because i I tried to get my, my qualification in early at um, Lanzarote. Um, I think I had a puncture and lost a bit of time on the bike and, and missed qualification narrowly. So then I kind of thought, well, I need to quickly find another race. So I think I entered Bolton, Ironman Bolton, um, got my spot there, and then, of course, raced Kona the same year. So that was sort of three Ironman races with a Kona in the same year, mm. which is a bit of a challenge. So, yeah, it's nice to be able to get it done early doors and then, just enjoy the enjoy the the year ahead of Kona uh, doing what you fancy
0: so you you started in 1988 did you
1: say you're 50 now yeah turned 50 this year so um first triathlon was uh, no sorry I, I started in the sport of triathlon let's say in 1988 I think I joined the local tri club um I wasn't particularly sporty as a kid um I, I mean I was active I spent a lot of time outdoors i I swam a bit, you know, but not really competitively. Mm. I, I enjoyed the, the occasional cross-country at school, um, rode my BMX, that kind of stuff. But it wasn't a competitively sporty kid. Um, my schools, for whatever reason, were primarily into team sports and football primarily, which mm. I'm absolutely hopeless at. So football didn't really float my boat. So I was kind of, I wouldn't say quite cast aside, but I, there wasn't really anything for me at school in terms of, in terms of sport. Um, so, actually, my first sport I took seriously I, um, was martial arts. I was big into martial arts as a kid. Um, studied Lao Ga Kung Fu for uh, four years as a school kid, but this was all after school, you know, so... Mm-hmm. Um, evenings and weekends, that sort of thing. Was,
0: was that because was that because you watched kung fu on the telly like I did? With I think, well,
1: yeah, probably. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I yeah. was, you know, the kind of Bruce Lee movies and stuff. I fancy myself as a bit of a <laughs> Bruce Lee, Enter the Dragon, that kind of stuff. But I, if I'm honest, I wasn't really massively into the whole hitting people side of things. But I really enjoyed the the art the art side of the sport, and also really enjoyed just being super fit. I mean, and I was I was a kid, but I was I mean, I was super fit because we were doing. I guess you'd call it CrossFit (laughs) or cross training these days, Mm. but it was, you know, you sort of classic, you know, sit-ups, press-ups, squat, all the kind of typical kind of gym type exercises. And that was the kind of mainstay of our training. So I was, you know, I used to get a real kick out of doing, um, you know, hundred press-ups, hundred sit-ups, that sort of thing, and just loved being really fit. Um, And and that gave me a really good grounding, I think, in just being fit and enjoying being fit. Um, And as I say, I studied that for four years, I think, reached – um they're uh, not not quite black sash but one away from black sash which wouldn't which would have meant then getting a bit more serious about it and traveling further for coaching and that sort of thing and, and as a kid at the time relying on parents to take me places and with two brothers and a sister that was that was a challenge so so i, th- um,
0: I think when you're in your when you're in your teens like that um it's easy to get involved in all of the surface stuff. You know, the, the ability to have a self-defense is always good when you're at school, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Particularly, sure. particularly if you're a runner type and you're at school with all those big lads, you know, you've got you've got to be able to stand up to them. Um, it's something different to all the, to what all your mates are doing. Like you say, you do, I, I used to go to judo, and so uh, um, it was the same sort of thing. It was half an hour circuit training and then all the sort yeah. of throwing skills and, and that sort of stuff. But yeah. I remember then I wasn't – I don't think – really as a teenager you ever really engage in that whole mindset the breathing the sort of focus the almost mm-hmm. like the meditation aspect did, did you get into that or do you recognize yeah, that, and that I, now i mean,
1: i did i did actually so because yeah. the, a big part of valgar kung fu is the uh, what they call the sets or the patterns you know i think they call it kata and different um different mm-hmm. martial arts which are these sort of set pieces and it is all about breath control and and control of the body and i and i, and I hear similar stories from mates who have grown up doing gymnastics and, that, and, and those sort of um, disciplines where you really have to be in control mm-hmm. of your body um, and learn to control your breathing and the movement of the limbs. And, and looking back at that, I do think that was a, was a, was a really important part of my grounding mm-hmm. really in health and fitness and, um, you know, just being in good all round condition um, and plus all the other things like, you know, learning to kind of, you know, um, turn up to training and, 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 and those sorts of things. And that, and that sort of discipline aspect of following a sport and being dedicated to the sport. Um, a, a lot of that did come from the martial arts, I think. Um, so that, that was quite interesting for me, but, but it, but it exposed me to the fitness, as I say, and it, and we, and a big part of what we did was fitness. We'd go running around the streets, um, of Salisbury where I grew up in my little Kung Fu suit, which in hindsight was you probably couldn't get away with these days but um you know is it a, I really enjoyed that I really enjoyed running and you know, we'd stop and do press-ups in the park and I just got a real mm. buzz out of you know my body being able to do stuff that that other people couldn't um and as I as I followed that more and more I started to realize that actually the kind of the, the running and the, and the fitness was was what it was about for me so
0: I, I think when you're growing up, if you if you are involved in those um, team sports or, or you know th- things like martial arts, where where it is multi directional, and you've got an all round con- conditioning, um, same as playing football or rugby or any of those other team sports, you, you do get that um, resilience, that b- body resilience. You know, we, you and I, I um, you, yeah. think, you think about elite triathletes <laughs> that we both know of, Craig Alexander, and. Marinda Carfrae, particularly, always stood out to me as just fantastic-looking runners, well balanced, mm, but they're yes. quite compact individuals, aren't they? Compared to some, yeah. in term, if you look at their physique, they're quite compact, well put together. Don't look frail like like some of the triathletes. And I know Indeed. both of those came from. A, I think Mirinda Carfrae surprisingly played basketball. Um, Craig Alexander played soccer, so that yeah, that, yeah, sort yeah. Of, that sort of multidirectional sport gives you a different sort of physique. Um yeah. which you can use as a base to to build a, a good engine on.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I agree. Um and I and I think for me, I having missed out on the on the on the team sports at school, um the, the 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 martial arts gave me that, you know, it gave me that kind of that that sense of belonging in a sense. Yeah, you know, I didn't I didn't really get anything from school sports because I never really felt as though I was able to contribute to the outcome of the of the game. You know, if we won mm. a game of football, I I never really felt as though I'd played much of a part in it. And if we lost, I was kind of felt it was my fault. So <laughs> it was a sort of um lose-lose situation. But um, you know, once the once the onus was on me, you know, and it became down to to fitness, you know, and and I and I realized quickly that um with training you got better, you know, and that that was a, a bit of a revelation to me, really, that um school cross country being a case in point, you know you have your, you have your kids at school who just seem to win the cross country race when I mean, we none, none of us really train we just mm. you just have these naturally sporty kids that oh it's you know x y or z he 's won the cross country again um and I actually got to the point where I would go out before school in the morning and and do a run you know voluntarily do a run, which was quite unusual as a kid mm. to be doing um, and I, and I got better you know I realized that. You know, that I was starting to move up the, the ranks in the school across country. So that sort of that realisation that I was in control of things and I could actually get better at something by training um, was quite important to me, I think. Um, and then when the opportunity presented itself to start getting a bit more involved in triathlon, it was actually a local triathlon club that had an advert in the window of a, of a local bike shop. And I thought that, that sort of seems right up my street because mm. I, can, I can imagine that this is the sort of thing that just rewards being fit, you know, it just seemed to be, didn't require a great amount of skill. But the harder you are prepared to work and the more you're prepared to train, chances are you you, you just get better. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was 1988. And, that, and, I, and I joined my local tri Um The timing was pretty good, I think, because you'll remember it was around the time, you know, 89, that triathlon was starting to appear on, British TV, Um Mike, Mike Pig. World sport, I think it was. Mike, the Mike, the, Mike Pig, yeah.
0: the Mike Pig Show,
1: yeah, yeah. Alan and Scott, you know, the Iron War in '89. You know, this just absolutely captivated mm. me, and it was such a colourful, just worlds apart from anything that I was used to seeing. These guys, these amazingly sort of tan guys on TV, yeah, yeah, running in the sun, and it just, as a kid, it was just, oh, it was just so exciting to see that, and and it absolutely captivated me. So at that point I, I decided to do my first triathlon and and I think I forget who it was that was organizing at the time but there was a there was a sort of thing I think they called them try a Try day or something and it was yeah. a, it was a bit of an initiative that that somebody was organized I forget who now but a countrywide thing where you could just have a little go at a triathlon pool based um typically and there was one in Swindon which wasn't far from where I lived and I and I cobbled together some kit, I borrowed a, a bike from somebody and I've got a picture of it somewhere of me on this touring bike um, with a pair of sort of Dunlop Green Flash trainers and, mm. uh, you know, just kit cobbled together from various different sports. Had a go, had a go at this um, this pool event and I absolutely loved it, you know, it was just totally hooked. Um, and from that point on, I didn't really look back. I just kind of, I just consumed triathlon really in all its forms be that training with club mates or or watching it on telly or or doing some of the local races. And and the scene was pretty colourful. You know, there was some, there were a couple of people in in my area in the south of England. A chap called Roger Wakeling who was organising races under the mm-hmm. concept Sport brand. There was a lovely lady called Lindsay Beale who.
0: Oh, Lindsay! Who, Lindsay's who, in my uh, Lindsay's in my SWAT team. Yeah, I know yeah, Lindsay. Lind- I know Lindsay quite still, well. Yeah,
1: she's still very active, and she was. I mean, she was instrumental. She was all she organised a, a series called the I think it was called the Tech Man series or something in, you, in south you, England.
0: Do you if you were from Swindon then? Do you remember Trevor Gunning, Trevor and Sally Gunning? Yeah, absolutely.
1: in the sort of early two twenty days, and I mean, I was I was South Coast, so um, it was still my stomping ground. But um, there was lots to go at, you know, and it was all very. It all felt. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be so grand as to say we were. We were sort of pioneers, but it it almost felt like it, you know. I think we were.
0: I think we were. We were
1: doing something kind of. This felt really new and exciting, and. Nobody was doing it, you know. It just, it was, it really, as a kid, it was so exciting.
0: I, I remember doing an event in the early 90s in Hunstanton, which is on the Norfolk coast. Hmm. And um, it was a lovely day, but the tide was coming in and it was quite windy. And so the wall that you had to swim um, in between the, the sort of the seawall and all of the marker posts, the groins that they had out there that sort of stopped the boats coming that, that actually marked the slipway down from the quayside onto the beach. And the, the waves were coming in, you know, made more violent by the winds and then slapping into the wall and going back. So it was just like a flipping washing machine. They had one kayak out there, no no, yeah. um, no rib out there, motorized boat to collect anybody. There were people going in down this slip ramp and then holding, swimming out and holding onto these posts, asking for <laughs> some, some help. And the poor kayaker yeah. couldn't go anywhere because he was getting battered back and I carried on and I remember thinking I'm not doing very well here. I'm getting overtaken by loads of people. I wasn't really It was <laughs> like that day we did in Wales where one minute you were swimming next to this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next minute he was on your right. And then you were in yeah. the end of him. And then, um, so I got out, I remember getting out of the swim and, uh, getting into transition thinking, everybody must have overtaken me and being really surprised at the number of bikes that were still there. Mm, Anyway, mm. I carried on and it was one big loop and then you ran along the seafront back, by which time the tide had gone out, the sea was beautifully calm and I was thinking, well, I don't know what all the fuss is about. I I think half (laughs) the people... Half the people pulled out because of the swim. The race the race organizer was banned from ever organizing anything by British <laughs> triathlon because of the lack of safety coverage. But, you know, that sort of stuff would never get a sanction yeah. to go ahead now.
1: So Well, you remind um, me of a, a, a series of events that were run um, uh, down in Bournemouth when I was a kid, and they were a, a little beach to series. And we rocked up there on a, on a Wednesday after school or work or whatever, and we turned up in our Speedos and – Somebody mm-hmm. would just scroll a number, you know, and mark a pen on your arm and send you into the sea for a swim. And then you'd run along the beach. And it, and it just felt like, you know, we were doing it. We were kind of, and, and I always felt then that, you know, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm These people I've seen on TV, I mean, I was sort of emulating, I felt like I was emulating yeah. my heroes, you know, running mm-hmm. up and down Bournemouth Beach. And, and that was the point where it all just felt so... New and different, and and not particularly complicated. We just kind of mm. turned up and just cobbled stuff together and lent your bike against a tree or or whatever. And there was none of the there was none of the kind of chip timing and the and the fancy stuff we've got these days. And, and we just loved it. You know, we just kind of really felt as though we were blazing a bit of a trail. I think.
0: Well, I've I've talked before in some podcasts with some of the older athletes, you know, that have been around a while about how used to fill in a. you'd you'd pick something up in a sports shop you'd fill it in and ask have to send off a stamp two stamp addressed envelopes one one to get your instructions back one to get the results later there was no there was nowhere where you could go and get a printout or a digital readout of your times you had to wait three weeks until the organizer sent you a a sort of 10 pages of results and you'd go through it and mark your time out and then if you were like Mm -hmm. me you'd sort of go right i got that was my time there i count up manually how many people are <laughs> faster me on yeah. the swim where was i on the bike well, what do i need to do there and then get my calculator yeah, yeah. out and work out you know
1: yeah um, it's all ultimately- and, and you get and you get your real hard copy photographs through the post as well none of this online <laughs> digital yeah. photographs you know you'd actually get your, yeah. your physical photographs through the post and they said well if you like these photos you've got to send me some money and if, if you don't you've got to send them back and of course yeah. people already did. i <laughs> 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 yeah, I probably got a, I
0: probably got yeah. a, a, um, a box folder of illicit photographs yeah. that I, uh, taken that. And those poor cameramen that spent all day there and exactly, uh, yeah, earned five yeah. quid from one person. But <laughs> so, um, um, you'd have probably like me seen the Julie Moss crawling thing in Kona. You, you, you mentioned the Iron War. at, well, at what point did Iron Man attract your interest and how long did it Iron take Man you? To, l- yeah, how to, to get into that after you started? Yeah
1: so i so I think Iron Man was always captive, always captivated me, but I never in a million years imagined it would be something I would do you know i I, I think I was very focused on the short course stuff as a, as a as a youngster as a junior, and that extended right the way through um university at loughborough um I mean, there really wasn't much people weren't really doing Iron Man well they, they were, but they were they were kind mm-hmm. of serious you know they it wasn't something that you entered into unless you'd been doing triathlons for a long time. So, ah, good. yeah, good I, point. I, but I, so I kind of went through, you know, served my time really and, and learned the craft. And 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 the, and the sense was that you sort of moved up from the distances. I don't know mm-hmm. whether you'd agree, but you, you started with. I mean, I did a couple of years of pool-based stuff, and then I moved into doing some open water events. I think mm-hmm. my first open water event was um, the Bath Triathlon in early 90, maybe 1990, 91, something like that. Then I started doing some of the 220 race series, the, the classic events like the Windsors and the Bournemouth, all pretty well established. But but Kona was still a or, or Ironman generally was still a real sort of you know I just didn't see it as something that I would I could do. It just it just seemed something that other people did. And occasionally you'd you'd meet somebody who'd been to Kona, you know, and, mm. and at a race, and you just you couldn't believe that people did it. It just seemed unbelievable you know as, as a kid to to imagine that those sort of distances could be could be achieved and i think that the turning point for me really was when the drafting racing started to come into the sport and I, and you know my by my own admission i'm not uh, a strong swimmer it's not, it's not my strength in of the three disciplines um and the, and the bike is so you know drafting racing for me is is the is the worst case scenario you know mm-hmm. i I've, I've, I've relied on my my bike strength throughout my, my competitive career, I suppose to get me back into the mix uh, for the run after, after perhaps being a little bit behind on the swim. So, um, you know, good, a good bike runner, but that doesn't work well for drafting racing. So I didn't really see my future in drafting racing. Um, the, The Loughborough setup was great while I was there. I mean, it was the closest thing, I guess, to a, what you'd call a performance squad at the time. I mean, there really wasn't, much in the way of performance squad or talent ID or that sort of thing. That's not like there is now, but it was a, it was a closed group of, of very motivated mm-hmm. individuals who were all training together daily. Um, and I think yeah, that's, that's where I really started to take my sport quite seriously. Um, but still focusing on the, um, on the short course on the Olympic distance. And I, and i targeted qualification for the, the worlds at Manchester, the age group worlds in Manchester in uh what was it, 93? 93,
0: I think. Mm-hmm. Who who would have been at Loughborough that, that um, people might know of when you were there?
1: So we're talking about people like Colin Dixon, Martin Hagger, Craig Ball, Chris Maund. Mm. I mean these are I think yep. Colin is maybe still racing. I, I I bumped into Colin a couple of years back racing as an age group is still very fast and we you know we had a good race together at uh, National Sprint Race, I think it was, at one of the theme thought park, is it, theme park? Yeah, mm-hmm. we definitely did a race together. Mm. Um, so that, so those guys were, I mean, they were the best in the country, re, uh, really, at the time. Um, I think a lot of them are still involved in, in triathlon. Dan and Starcido, I think, is still involved um, through the sport at Roughborough. Uh, well,
0: remember. yeah, I remember still, um, they didn't really get, the first performance squad was, was set up around in Bath just before probably the Sydney Olympics.
1: Yes, um, I think you're
0: right. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, Loughborough had it pretty much all in its own way for a for a long time because there was no real direct competition. I mean, you had your sort of you had your traditional triathlon clubs, which were you know geographical clubs, but you didn't have any any performance centres. And you're right, I think Bath came on the scene and they, and they spent a lot of money um, and started challenging Loughborough and the dominance of Loughborough, certainly at the triathlon um, student level.
0: Yeah, well, so Chris Jones started One Vision, and I think he started coaching some of those guys. And you'd see them at races, and they were like the first, profession, you know, sort of squad of uh, full time athletes that were representing Great Britain. But we didn't have, like you say, we didn't have any professional athletes, did we? I think no. Spencer Smith and Simon Lessing were just coming through towards the no. Well, that was um, the
1: amazing thing, you know. The kind of the the elite guys at the time, you know, the sort of the brownies and the Alexies of the day were were those people you mentioned, you know, Spencer Smiths and uh, Glenn, Glenn Cook. Spen- Glenn Cook, yeah. Glenn um, was definitely but, the first
0: full time, I think. He and I know yeah, he went but, he went across to San Diego and trained with Mike Pig and all those guys for
1: one year. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and uh, and I think he had a great race in was the Avenue on the first kind of world champs. He, mm. he he got a really good result there. But you know, those guys, we were you got to race shoulder to shoulder with them on a on a, on a weekly basis because mm-hmm. they we were all we are all champing at the bit for the same races there were there was no stream for elite athletes to race at, so you ended up racing um alongside these guys on week in week out and I think that meant that the entry level at that time was actually pretty pretty good i mean I, I remember when I did qualify for, for Manchester in 89, I think I had to, I had to go under two hours to, to get a qualifying yeah. spot for Olympic distance. So I, I, remember, I remember racing at the um, Olympic distance in Ellesmere, I think it was a qualifying race, and I went 158-something to qualify for Manchester. And most people in my age group at that time, which I think was maybe the 20-24 we'd all we all had to be at that kind of level to get a spot, particularly so when races were nearby, you know, Europe or, or the UK, they're very popular. Um but but, but the standard was very high and it was still still non-drafting is it as it, it was today at the age group level. Um but yeah I knew I knew probably my my time was was coming to an end at the, the Olympic distance, certainly at the competitive level with the sport changing to drafting.
0: So at what point did Claire come into your life, Duncan? Because you and Claire like uh, yeah, you go okay. to races, you go to races hand in hand, you do the same races, you, you share the same Literally. passions. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. um that, that's, I mean, that's been brilliant, hasn't it? Because it's like, means you've got no friction when you want to go out riding. You've just got to train sure, yeah. partner.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say that I've pretty much dedicated most of my spare time to triathlon once I was into it. And certainly through my university years, it was pretty much all I ever did. Mm. Um, and I, 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 it was probably once I left university and I moved, I actually I went back to university to do a second degree because I wanted to put off getting a, Proper job for as long as possible. Um, and it allowed me to continue um, doing triathlons. Um, but I joined the local tri-club uh, in Leicester, the Leicester triathlon Club. And that's where I met Claire. So we, yeah, I suppose you could say we met over a lane road, or not over a lane road, we're in the same lane as it happens, but uh, we we met across a, across a swimming pool. Um and we, I knew each other for a for a good number of years um before we sort of got together as a as a couple um and claire tells a funny story of, and um, we tried to be a little bit secretive because you know how it is with um mm. new relationships in clubs and stuff you, you don't like to sort of make too much of a big deal of things so we were being really secretive you know we turn up to to swim training we don't even go as far as to arrive in different cars and leave in different cars you know to give the illusion that <laughs> there was nothing going on but um of course everyone knew and when we did finally kind of announce it as a sort of formal a formal thing then everyone's like oh, yeah we, we've known for ages
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, it took,
1: it, took your time about telling us all exactly yeah no but you're right we, we do we do the sport together as a couple and it's um it's what's made it possible i think in in all reality because you know as well as i do so si, if you're once you move up to the to the longer distances the the volume of training increases the amount of time you spend training increases inevitably um and i think having somebody else in your life that i mean it's it's great that claire is also a competitive traffic herself but um it's it's enough to to have somebody that appreciates what it means to you as an individual and to and to have an insight into that you know so we will always respect one another if i mean we don't do a huge amount of training together um per se but we do train at the same time if that makes sense so mm-hmm. if i've got a long bike bike ride to do then inevitably claire will as well so we're out of the house at the same time we're back in the house at the same time you know so um we are we're not leaving the other one behind or um leaving them to pick up the slack on the on the household chores you know we just we just don't bother with the household chores, frankly. We just <laughs> let them pile
0: up. To an outsider looking in, and pardon me if I'm making a, a, a massive misassumption here, but to the outsider looking in, it seems like you have both of you set your life up to dedicate it to that passion of triathlon about seeking those adventures. Um, like, like me, you've, you've, you know, maybe it's a subject you don't want to touch upon, but you've got no children, you've got the dog. Um, you've, as you said, you were dedicating a lot of your time to training for triathlon. Um, did as as that as that informed your career choice as well? You said that you tried to avoid working by going back to get another degree, like I know a lot of people have done. this like, oh, if I can get a master's, I can continue to live the. Uh, yeah, no, that's study. definitely true, yeah.
1: and I, I don't think it informed my career um, necessarily. I mean, I was I was one of the rarities of Loughborough in that I wasn't doing a, a sports related degree. You know, I wasn't one of these ones that walked around in the in the attractive African violet tracksuit on a daily yeah. basis. So I I was doing a um I was going to say a proper degree then, but that would be that would be uh, rude of me to say that, but I was doing a, a degree in industrial design um mm-hmm. which is my profession um which was quite involved actually i mean it was it was quite a heavy workload um but you know this university was great for me because you could control your own time you know you were your own boss to some degree um and you could fit training in around that but no, I, I don't think triathon has has shaped my my career in any sense. I've always been quite passionate about design. That's um something that I'm, I'm sort of big into. Um but I think it's um yeah in terms of in terms of my 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 relationship with Claire, I think it's important for us both to realise that we we need triathlon in our lives. Mm-hmm. And it has become one of those things that um that has has shaped our relationship, I think. And 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 I think it's sort of it works really well because um we're quite similar insofar as we're both quite competitive. So you know, we want to be achieving at a decent level. Mm. Um and we we're both quite adventurous spirits, so we like to travel. So yeah, I think it's I, I do feel as though I found a soulmate with Claire and someone that shares all my I don't I don't feel as if I've had to sort of change at all, if that makes sense. And I think that's the the, the secret really to our success is that we haven't had to change to, to accommodate one another mm. we're, we're still ourselves and we still do the stuff we love to do but we just do it together so it sounds a bit softy, but
0: no go. it doesn't but it was interesting what you said about that gravel bike riding and uh, you know because you, you have a different problem it's not like oh how do i tell the other half i want a new bike it's like how do i tell the other half that we need to buy two
1: yeah no exactly no like a different problem got- I've got mates who, I mean, a uh, mate was trying to work out how he was going to get a new bike past his wife um, mm, recently. And he, yeah. and he said, Well, providing I buy the same color, I'm, I'm okay because she won't know. And it's like, Well, like, that'll never get past Claire. You know, if I change the bar tape on my bike, she'll new bar tape, you know, she'll, she'll spot it. So, yeah, when do, when do I get new bar tape? You know, <laughs> so it's, well, it's... I, everything, everything is timed too, whether it's wetsuits, trainers, bikes, you know, you have to back the level in.
0: There's that. There's that other sort of um, urban myth, isn't there, about the guy who told his wife, "Oh, they only ever cost five hundred quid." So when they got divorced, she sold them all. (laughs) Sold all his bikes for five hundred quid each instead of the five grand they were
1: worth. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. It's. uh, I think it's a nice problem to have. It's not. It's not something I have to worry about. But we do have to keep each other in check. You know. So often I think. Oh, I might I might get some new wheels? What do you reckon? Should I get these or should I get these? And she'll always say, "Well, get them and you know, get those ones. Yeah, they're the nicest ones." <laughs> so uh, I'll never be reined in. So I ha- you have to kind of have a better, a better kind of handle on your own spending. I think when you've got somebody <laughs> alongside you that's encouraging you to spend money rather than the opposite.
0: So let's let's briefly talk about Iron Man, and I want that to to lead towards um, some of your guiding work that you've been doing because we're going we're to have your. Guiding um, yes. partner Ian Dawson on fairly soon to talk about that, but um, yes. so you started doing Ironman, you did you did pretty well. And one of the things, the other thing, I mean, you, you were coached by Jack Maitland, who was my business partner for a Still long time. Yeah, and one of the things I used to um, share to people about persistence and about you know you can you can't manifest qualifying for Kona. It's just it's about patience and it's about hard work and yeah, it's about for sure. being, and it's about being in the right ballpark. And I remember you yeah, had yeah. about three or four instances in races before you actually qualified in in wales where you would ever so close you know you were a couple of minutes out it's like yeah, look yeah. at the draw these guys turned up and you had a good yeah. race but they had a better one Um, you got a puncture and a mechanical and but then in wales you did it um yeah and I, yeah. I, you know I, I did that race as well it wasn't a particularly easy day was it but um no. but you no, no, no. again you were in the right ballpark and you, but, but talk about that persistence and just the ability to just get your head down and be in it for the long haul
1: yeah you're absolutely right and I think in my the the early part of my career looking at Ironman I thought you know Kona Kona is not really on my radar it's it Mm. just seems so it just seemed a million miles away um and and I guess I thought when I did start racing Ironman I did my first one in 2002 um in Penticton Canada Mm -hmm. um and I you know I was like a country mile off Complication, but, but it wasn't something that was was on my radar at that point and the, and the more I did I did a few more I, maybe you know maybe I should give, give Kona a thought and I, and I and I sort of had a fairly half-assed attempt at it in 2009 I think I did Man, uh Switzerland but I was still like an hour off the pace I thought well you know I, I gave it a bit of a shot there but I'm st- I'm still way off the mark so I, I sort of shelved it really I thought Maybe you know, maybe it's just beyond what I'm capable of. Um, but then the sort of years roll by and you, and you get small improvements. And I, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I really need to kind of have a go at this, and I, but, but do it properly, you know. I think I, and that's the thing with Kony, you can't just go into it half-heartedly. You have to really think this is something I now, it's not, it's not going to happen just out of blind luck. I actually have to dedicate some, some time and effort to this. And that was the point at which I did start working with Jack. Because until that point, I've been completely self-coached. I've never had a coach, mm-hmm. um, and and that was the point at which I really did, you know, knuckle down and, and get and start getting a bit serious. Um, the first year I did start working with Jack, I I, I was pretty dedicated. Um, I took it quite seriously, you know. I was doing train. I was I, I targeted Lanzarote as the race I was going to try and qualify at because I feel I do better comparatively in the in the tougher races. I'm you know, I'm not so good on the on the faster faster events, so I targeted um, Lanzarote. I'd, and, you know, I'd gone out. In fact, I might have stayed at your gaff site actually in the, in in the, in the February and did a training camp out there mm-hmm. for the for the week. And I, you know, I pull up all the stops and I, I covered all the bases, and, and I didn't qualify. You know, and I. I thought, geez, I've really done everything I can there. And I still haven't, haven't quite done it. I'm still not quite there. I think, as you say, I was maybe a couple of minutes off or something. But, but I was close enough to think, you know, I'm not being an idiot. I'm, I'm close enough to actually give this a go now, I think. Um, so I did have another another punt in Tenby, uh, that, that that same year, I think. Um, and I and I double punctured and I had to wait on the side of the road for like an hour and a half for technical assistance. And I mm. thought, well, I'll you know, I'll still finish, but I jogged around the marathon and it's obviously way off the pace. So um didn't happen that year. Um and the following year, so by this point, I've kind of been bitten by the bug now. I kind of got you you kind of got that point where you think it's it's close enough to touch, and I think I'm I'm almost there, but I just need to push a bit harder. So that so the following year. I pushed, I pushed a bit harder and and I think that was probably my best year today working with Jack for the for a full cycle. Um, we got my my half marathon, you know, I got down to less than 75 minutes. I was I did a I did a marathon in 244. I was I was getting PBs on the bike. So I thought this is, you know, this is the quickest I've ever been. And I and and at Tempe that year, I just I think it pulled together the best race I've I've probably ever done. You know, it, it was everything just came together. All the planets aligned, um, and, I, and I qualified. So um, yeah, it just goes to show that you know, I, I was I was close enough to kind of to feel as though I could do it, but it but it still required a you know degree of persistence and dedication. It, it didn't just happen, you know.
0: What what was your what was your time in that initial um, Ironman Canada in two thousand
1: and two? So yeah, my, my times are quite interesting because I, I did—I think I did ten hours and forty minutes odd for, for my okay, first race. That was but, that was
0: that was my best in Canada, ten forty.
1: Yeah, but I think, but I think as we mentioned earlier, si, you know, people didn't do Iron Man back in those days unless you've been doing triathlon for a long time. So it's not mm-hmm. like—I mean, it's a bit different now. I think people do it as a sort of one and done, you know, tick the box, a bit of as an experience. But I but I felt I didn't even want to try and do an Iron Man until I felt I could confidently. Mm. race one really you know and 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 race the course um run the run or, or as much as it as, as I could so so I my 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 increases or my re, my the reductions in in the time over the years have been quite quite small and steady you know so my second one I think I went maybe 10 20 and then and then I went just under 10 hours and then I kind of you know so that so the the increases or the reduction time wasn't wasn't dramatic mm. because I I was always at a level where I was, I was reasonably competitive from the start. Yeah. Um, and I, and I haven't, as I said, I haven't really targeted the, the quicker races. I very quickly moved into the more sort of adventurous sort of esoteric type events. Like you mentioned the Norseman and the Alpe d'Huez race, and I've raced the Ombrun um, race in France, you mm. all, all super tough races where you don't go there to get a fast time. Um, but but Tenby that year, I think I qualified at, again around 10, 10 hours 20, something like that. But then, you know, the the top guys are, are maybe an hour slower or or than they would be on a, a super quick course anyway. So I felt time aside, it was it was probably the the, mm. the race that I'd really got to got out a really good performance. I, I seem to recall finishing 20, some 21st, maybe, including the pros and um gaining a gaining a qualifying spot outright. So and and cleared as well that same in that same event so we we ticked the box both of us qualifying for Kona for the following year um and and just was the absolute perfect perfect result really
0: well let's briefly touch on kona was it everything you dreamed of all of those years back when you were watching those um, original videos yeah, I mean, did, th- did it was it the dream
1: <laughs> the dream come yeah, true they, they, they say never meet your heroes but i mean yeah it was absolutely everything i imagined it would be um i'm an absolute Kona fanboy you know self-confessed of fanboy um and it was everything I dreamed it would be I, I don't know whether that's because I just set it up to be this this thing in my head but it was absolutely everything I imagined it would be um and more probably to the point where I you know I, I did get a little bit addicted and I think I I, you know, I once I did it once I wanted to go back again and I, pro- I probably would go back again <laughs> but um yeah, it's it's a great experience for for anyone that's a um a student of the sport and someone that and I think mm. it does help having having lived through those early days, you know, of um of seeing my heroes on TV and and then being on that same course and they talk mm. about moving the world champs to, to different locations each year, you know. For me, I would not have any interest in that. I would not have any interest in going to a world championships if it wasn't in Kona. And and actually on that subject it, it's never been the world championships to me it's Kona's Kona you know that's what it is mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't I don't care it, it doesn't need the world championship moniker for me for it to be a really special event in its own right and and that's what that's what's always drawn me to um, you, that you, legacy you know that history
0: you, you get to run on you know you get to run up what used to be called pay and save hill don't you where mark mark yeah. broke away from dave you get yeah, to yeah. ride yeah. out to to, on pretty much the original Kona course, but bar the sort of bit that goes out to the pit that's sort of in the south, a bit further south mm. down there. You get to swim on exactly the same swim course, climb up the same concrete steps that everybody's ever climbed up, um, yeah. onto the same pier that everybody's running and out of, where Jürgen Zach couldn't get his helmet buckle on and was throwing his,
1: yeah. throwing his yeah. from
0: there. You know, all of those things, you go you get, you get, go, run past that corner where Paul
1: and newbie colla- Fraser collapse, and you step on yeah. those bits where... And the um, first time I was there, so you know, I just I, I was transported back to that kind of mm-hmm. 16-year-old kid watching watching TV, watching Transworld Sport, and thinking, my God, these guys are just, just just blown away. And to think that I was there doing it was just the realization of it. I mean, yeah. it was a dream, a dream, really, you know, an absolute dream. So let's talk about guiding then. I mean, you've
0: you've got you've got a pretty good history. I know you you've going to the Commonwealth Games in a few weeks' time, but back in 2016, you guided um Haseeb
1: yes so so Haseeb was the first athlete i guided and haseeb um was a member of my local tri club um he was was primarily a runner i think it was how he started in in sport um and a very good one at that you know he he was going through guides at a fairly rapid rate you know he mm-hmm. was he was moving up through the club <laughs> trying to find increasingly faster and faster because they needed to be fast to guide him i mean I think one of the first events I I ran with Hassi, we did a a local six mile road race, and we we ran under thirty six minutes. You know, he was not, and and Hassi was completely blind. He's a he's a categorised as a B one, so he has no vision at all. So if anyone can imagine running with their eyes closed, or running down a a dark street at the dead of night through the countryside at sub six minute miling, tied to somebody, that's that's impressive. So. He was always a very quick runner, um, and he, he started to get involved in the sport of triathlon um, and very, very quickly established himself as one of the, one of the better visually impaired athletes in the country. Um, there weren't a huge number of them at the time, but there were a kind of group of very kind of dedicated individuals who were paving the way for paratriathlon at the time, uh, the other one being in Dawson, of course, who I'm guiding at the Commonwealth Games in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, but Ian was our main competitor. So we would we would constantly face up against Ian and his guides at the time. Um, and our first major competition was the World Paratriathlon Championships in Beijing, um, where Ian unfortunately came off his bike and we found ourselves vying for, um, as even I found ourselves vying for um, the, uh, the gold. Um, but there was a very, very fast uh Brazilian pair, I believe. And I think Hasib and I, we ran 18 minutes and change. We were, you know, quick run off the bike. Um, but the Brazilian pair did beat us. So um it's very interesting guiding because you have your own strengths and weaknesses, and then your athlete has their own strengths and weaknesses, and working out how to get the best out of yourself as a pair is very interesting. So with Hasib, you know, the the swim was always his weakness and being, being completely blind that, I mean, that must be absolutely terrifying for anyone that's fearful of water or to get into, to water in complete blackness and try and swim very difficult. Um, he's not a big guy, very light. Um, so not a huge engine on the bike, but the fact that he's light meant that we could often put in some pretty quick bike splits and get ourselves back on term for the, for the run.
0: Mm.
1: Um, so yeah, I, I, I guided Hassi for a good many years through a number of national championships. I think we got silvers and golds at national championships. Um, and then I think Hassi probably sensed the game was changing a little bit at the, at the elite level of the sport with people like Dave Ellis coming on the scene and just moving the, the, the level up a notch, um, and so Hassi wanted a different challenge. So we we looked at longer distance events. He started doing marathons, like I'd have been for a, for a London marathon one year. Um, and then we decided to have a crack at uh, the Ironman. So that, that's what took us to, uh, to Barcelona uh, to have a crack at the, the then... Um, I think that it, it was called the, the, the Guinness Record for the fastest Ironman blindfolded, which is the wording they give it, because it has to be something that anyone can have a go at. So if you fancy it, you just need a blindfold and and a tandem and you can have a go. So that's the (laughs) policy with, uh, with, with Guinness, you have to make it something that's that anyone can have a go at. So to, to get that record, he did literally have to wear a blindfold. I mean, although he is completely blind, he had a, he had a pair of goggles which had completely blacked out lenses onto the duration of the event. So completely zero vision from start to finish including transitions. Um, and yeah, it was, it was probably my toughest ever guiding experience. Um, guiding a B1 athlete is very challenging because they are totally reliant on you for, for everything. Uh, and you know as well as I do in an Ironman, you have long periods of time where you just need to switch off and go into your own mm. little world and, and just while the hour's away. But you, you can't do that when you're guiding a, a visually impaired athlete. You know, you have to be switched on the entire time. Um and Barcelona is a busy race. You know, it's congested on the bike. You know, we've all seen the draft packs on the bike. The run is incredibly congested, the swim as well. So the whole thing was absolutely draining mentally. And it kind of took me probably um a year to recover and actually get my, my mojo for guiding back because it was it I really felt as though it I was absolutely spent after that, after that event mentally, you know. Um I mean, we did get the record, but it was it was touch and go for a while. I think we we got it by a few minutes, but I mean we were really kind of pushing, pushing it close to the wire. Um, but it was great, you know, Hassi got the result he wanted, um, and he's done very well as a result of that. He's obviously written a very successful book. He's still competing and loving sport, um, focusing primarily on his running now. And that is what has prompted the switch to the um, to the competition, to Ian, <laughs> who needed a guide. Um, and, that's, and that's where we find ourselves today.
0: Brilliant. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to get Ian onto the conversation. So welcome to the show, Ian Dawson, uh, to join uh, myself and Duncan to chat about how the pair of you work together. Thanks very much. Uh, you're most welcome, Ian. So I am... Um, a bit of a novice when it comes to this whole guiding thing. Um, So I'm really, really interested to find out how it all works, particularly you've just discussed how it was working with Haseebian and, you know, how, um, how you have to learn these things. And uh, um, I guess then when you've got used to working with one partner and you start with somebody else, you you pretty much, you've got a little bit of uh, knowledge, but you pretty much start from scratch, aren't you? So um, who wants to, you tell Ian, tell me, tell me how you met Duncan and, um, Uh, what started this whole partnership
2: off well (laughs) um i mean i'd known duncan for a few years obviously been racing with hasib and and we'd we'd sort of competed against each other a number of times um you know particularly things like the world championships in, in china i think that was 2011 um we got to know each other a little bit then um but really um I'd been racing with a number of other guides over the years and I'd got to a point, uh, I think it was 2018 perhaps, uh, where I was struggling to get a guide for the national championships and um, this will make Duncan laugh. Um, but, you know, I literally went through about 15 different people that I tried <laughs> and I kept thinking about Duncan. I thought, no, no, because he races with Hasib. I didn't want to, you know, tread on Hasib's toes. and uh, um you know that kind of thing. So, I got to a point where I'd literally run out of names, and I thought, oh, "What the heck? I'll, I'll just give Duncan a a call and and see if he's interested." And uh, you know, mentioned it to Hassib, and he was pretty cool with it, and and Duncan seemed up for it. So, it, it things kind of rolled from there, really. Mm-hmm. I just you were fifteenth um, choice, mate.
1: Fifteenth, <laughs> <laughs> <16th>. brilliant.
0: Sixteenth, <laughs> <laughs> surely you said you'd got fifteen yeah. names. Yeah, Sixteenth yeah. yeah. choice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> No, it's funny though because uh, you, you do become, I, I imagine, quite protective of, of your of your guides. You know, certainly you you spend a lot of time working with an athlete, and uh, you, you do feel as though you're you know, they're they're the opposition. You know, at the end of the day, they're you're trying to beat them, and um, and there's lots of band It's all very very friendly, like loads of bands, obviously at races. But at the end of the day, you're there to beat the other pairing. Um, mm-hmm. And you become quite protective of your own athlete and you're looking for any little chink in the in the armor of the opposition. And you know, I wouldn't say I cheered when I saw Ian in a ditch um in Beijing, but you know, it didn't move us up upper spot. So uh yeah, it's <laughs> it's funny. And I can, I can totally understand why why Ian felt um, you know, I was sort of a long way down the list of potential uh guides once he was looking for a guide to, to replace the ones he was using.
0: So it was probably that. You okay mate as you were riding past fast Yeah route. yeah can I exactly. stop him to see if he needed help getting out of the ditch <laughs>
1: He's okay he's moving crack on <laughs> Um
0: just uh for the purposes of the listeners um just explain the category that you race in currently and cuz I know these things get shuffled around quite a bit don't they and that can be frustrating and irritating
2: Yeah um so it it's not changed much in the last couple of years for for my category but it's um it, PTVI, uh, so visual, visual impairment, and that is split into two subcategories. So you have uh, B1 athletes um, who have uh, no no vision, no useful vision, uh, maybe just light and dark perception. Uh, and then in the other half of the, the category is the B2, B3 athletes who, who are visually impaired and, and have a, a little bit of useful vision like myself. Um, the uh b two and b three athletes have a um, factor applied so uh we we have about i think it's two and a half or two minutes thirty five now uh deficit to make up on the the b one athletes so that's to try and level the playing field due to the differences in visual uh impairment
0: mm. okay so um and are those categories are they the same you, you know i guess that's um for the international triathlon union, is that the same the IOC and the Commonwealth Games committees, or do they differ from events where you get uh, a chance to compete at one but might not get a chance to race at another? Uh for for us in the, the the BI category it's all the same. Right. Okay. So we'll we'll talk about this towards the end, but you two are um have been selected to race in the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham in just a few short weeks. that must be must be very exciting for both of you. Is it? Is it?
2: Will this be your first time at the Commonwealths, um, Ian? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been really lucky, you know, to compete at um, sort of European Championships, World Championships, and Paralympics in cycling. But um, there's never actually been an opportunity to do Commonwealth Games. So uh, this is going to be pretty special, and and you know, a nice way to round out my career, really. And and for you, Duncan, I mean, I don't mean this in any disrespectful way at all, but, you know,
0: we were talking earlier about how we started pretty much together and you went through that whole thing about building up towards doing an Ironman, but still not thinking, well, not sure if I could qualify for that. And now here you are at 50 and you're going to be representing, you know, the country on on the world stage. Uh, And that that must be a fantastic accomplishment and sense of
1: satisfaction for you. Brilliant, yeah. I mean, uh, and, and uh, on that point, I'm, I'm I'm actually not the oldest on the in the triathlon. So I should point that out. There is one guy that's, that's even older than me, at fifty-two. There's oh. an Aussie guy who's older, uh, and there's a guy doing lawn bowls. I think he's maybe in his seventies. Yeah. So I'm actually a spring chicken by by the the standards of uh, some others in the Commonwealth. Case.
0: Sure, but, it was uh, it wasn't the age thing so much as the fact that you know I I wonder um. If you couldn't ever have seen yourself racing in Kona, could you ever? This would have been no. probably even further beyond that expectation, wouldn't it?
1: No, and you're right. And I think when the the opportunity presented itself a couple of years back, Ernie and I got our heads together. We'd kind of moved on. I think it's fair to say from the sprint distance racing. Um, we still felt we had a lot more to give over the Ironman distance. We we'd raced an Ironman together in 2019, and again had another crack at the then. Um, world record so we, we got that record albeit briefly I think it's subsequently been lowered um, even for, even further but we've really kind of moved on to the to the long course to the Ironman racing um, but then the opportunity presented itself to have a go at least to try and qualify for the um, English Commonwealth Games team and we knew I mean we knew it was a real sort of outside chance because the strength in depth now within the home nations is is vast you know there's some really good athletes and i think ian will be the first to admit that the the game has really moved on subsequently in in recent years particularly with funding now you have athletes who are well i mean they're essentially fully funded elite athletes you know the kind of the top bi guys Dave Ellis and luke's guide um you know, they are they are elite athletes right. by any definition. Um, and there are some youngsters coming through in the shape of Oscar and Charlie who were snapping at their heels. And again, you know, the, the, the game has moved on. You know, Ian and Hasib, they were sort of paving the way, I guess, for the triathlon. And this is the, the sort of new breed, if you like, given the opportunity to train full time and really achieve some pretty impressive results. So we knew, I think, that... Qualification for the commies was a was a real sort of long shot, but we thought we've got to at least try or, or do what's asked of us to get the qualifying criteria, which were quite um quite involved at the time, um, governed around points um, attained in races and positions in Commonwealth tables, and also position within your home county, so home country. So it was a tall order, but we thought it was definitely worth worth a punt.
0: So let, let's go back to um, the basics of this. And I'm going to show you my, it, it's funny now. It wasn't as funny at the time. I, um, going way back uh, when we had the physio clinic, um, we knew of this masseur, sports masseur called Willie, and he was blind and he liked running. And so he cheekily said, well, I'll be happy to give you some free massage, Simon, if, uh, if you'd be willing to take me out running because I don't have anybody to go running with me. So I said, oh, okay, then. Um, and we went out and did a couple of runs. I picked him up at his house and uh, we set off. And I'm thinking, all right, it's all about communication, this, and I've got to keep talking, you know. Um, and uh, we did fairly well. Uh, we didn't really have – we had a couple of little incidents where we got caught up, but we were doing pretty well until we got back and we pretty much stopped running and we were over the ro- other side of the road from his house. And at this point, I sort of switched off. I was looking at the cars on the <laughs> road and I – Said, "Okay, right, Willie, we can go now." And I didn't tell him that there was a curb, and so he wasn't expected to put his foot down an extra three inches, and uh, he lost his footing, went sprawling in the road. He dragged me down, and then there were both of us in the middle of the road. Um, it was a it was a, a, a side road, so there was there was a car coming, but it wasn't going very fast. So, <laughs> but um, you know, I was full of apologies, and he's like, oh, "You need to talk to me about all these things." And it it, but what it showed, and I'm. What it showed to me was that you just can't switch off for one single moment. You know, I, I thought I'd done pretty well, navigated. We'd run through the fields. We'd gone over some styles. We'd gone past some trees and I'd managed to make sure he didn't run into any of those. And so I was congratulating myself on my skill
1: at this and then let myself down at the last minute. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the, that's yeah. the point at which, you know, when you, you drop your guard for a moment and that's when... Mm the accidents can potentially happen and they do happen. And the thing is that my experience with guiding visually impaired athletes is they do not want to hold back. You know, they are, they want to go full chat all the time. It's not as though, um, you imagine if you or I tried to run without seeing, you know, we'd be really tentative and we'd be trying Mm -hmm. to work out what, you know, Ian, Ian and Haseeb, they, they, they did, they want to go full gas all the time. So they are completely reliant on you to tell them when they're about to run into a post or down a curb or a flight of steps or whatever it might be. And not only there's a curb coming, it's what well, is the curb going up or down? Or, or you know, it's yeah. it's it's more than it's. You have to be quite prescriptive with with the danger. And we had we had issues in Estonia with a couple of little sleeping policemen. I mean, they're really minor, but when you're fatigued and you you've got that Iron Man shuffle, and uh, you know. You know what it's like, and you barely pick your feet off the ground. Any any sort of slight deviation in the surface, a pothole, a, a raised a raised brick, or whatever, can be can be a hazard mm, that trip somebody up. Mm, so
2: definitely, yeah, you
1: have to you have to have your, your wits about you the whole time on the run, particularly.
0: So, I guess different partners have different ways in which they like to communicate. So, was that a problem with you switching over to Ian, um, and likewise, Ian for you,
2: have, uh, picking Duncan up as a partner after you'd had others before? Um, I mean, Ian. yeah. For for me, it, it wasn't a big problem because I think uh, Duncan being an experienced guide really helps, and I think probably because he's worked with someone who has even less vision than than myself, um, he's probably acutely aware of some of the pitfalls and issues. Um, and I think yeah for for me i find it quite easy to switch between people because i've raced with so many people um so i'm quite adaptable i think um but i you know i just uh tend to give a, a, a few bits of key information to people and and you know just to outline the kind of things they might want to tell me um because it is difficult for people to know uh what level i i can see to um what things i'm going to pick up and what things i'm going to miss and that that can vary day-to-day and, and with light conditions and things like that so I just tend to give a bit of an outline and then uh, we, we go and race and hope for the best really so I guess I that
0: when, um, So, just, just before you come in there Dunk, so I guess when you take on a new partner Ian you tell them how you like to do it and then they have to they try to fit in with that is that right
1: um, I would to, say it's the opposite j- actually oh, really? if, yeah. I could, if, I, if I could jump in there definitely I mean that's that's the one thing that comes out with Ian is his adaptability and, I, and I, exactly as you say, so I'll frequently find myself saying, well, which, which way do you like to do this? Ian, shall I get off the bike left or right? And he said, just do what you want. I'll, I'll adapt. Mm-hmm. And, and he's incredibly adaptable um, uh-huh. to the point where, you know, I literally just do the things the way I want to do them and, and he fits in around them. So whether that's, well, which leg do you like up at the start of the bike, left <laughs> or right? Well, do what you yeah. want. I'll adapt. And I think and that's easy. the same, totally
2: adaptable. same with the swimming as well, isn't it? And, you know, different people that I've raced with, they swim quite differently. Their stroke pattern is, is you know, markedly different from one person to another. Uh, stroke rate, uh, how much they rotate through the water, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I, I think it's much easier for me to adapt to, to the guides mm-hmm. than for them to try and adapt to me. Yeah, um, I think
1: there's this perception work. that, um, you know, the... The the guy, the the athletes, Ian in this case, is, is got he's having a lovely time, and I'm telling him what to do and where to go and how to do it. And and, it, and if anything, it's the opposite. You know, I'm I'm the one that's having the lovely time and just getting on with it. And Ian's busy fitting it around me. You know, it's um particularly evident in our swimming. You know, we did some some training together in the last couple of weeks, and we actually had some video done exploring different methods for tethering. And it became very clear that Ian was constantly adjusting his technique to fit in with my swimming stroke. And when you have two people trying to adapt to one another, it, it doesn't work. You know, one of you has to do what they're used to doing and then the other person adapts accordingly. And it, and I think because Ian is so adaptable, he has the ability to change swim cadence or change the way he gets on or off a bike or whatever it might be. Um, it's It's worked really well for us to the point where we can generally speaking, turn up at races and and perform pretty well, just in the technical aspects of of, of the event. Mm. Um, because we we are just quite adaptable.
0: So who's the best uh, what's your swimming like? Are you comparable or is he in stronger new or um is it? I, we're pretty I'm close actually in this
1: one. I think put us in a put us in a pool. Um, we'd be pretty similar, which and I've always maintained that when you're guiding somebody, um it works best when you're when you're closely matched. You know there's, there's very little a guy can do to to make make the partnership go quicker. Um, if if the athlete's weaker, it just doesn't work, it doesn't work like that, you know. There's this obsession, um, some would say, with with the officiating that that the guy can somehow dramatically influence the the speed of the of of the athlete, and they they have an impact for sure, particularly on the bike. Um, but there's a limit to, to that, you know. I I, I can't make Ian swim any faster than he's really capable of and I can't make him run any quicker than he's capable of so it's it's really all him you know on the in terms of the speed that that, that we're going um and to me it's more about gelling as a as a partnership and, and being in sync and applying power on the bike in synchronization that sort of thing rather than you know me just overpowering and and, and trying to sort of make things go quicker it doesn't work like that it really doesn't
0: so when you when you let's talk about the individual disciplines now then so you talked about tethering and swimming what's what's the traditional way of doing it do you stick to that and what are the other things that you've tried and why didn't they work
2: if you can remember all those questions yeah do you want me to take that one yeah yeah yeah, it, yep. yeah. yeah. um i mean i don't think there's really a standard approach to tethering the The rule is you can tether anywhere on your body and the tether has to be of an elastic material and uh, it can't be more than a meter long or stretch to more than a meter. So there isn't, within that, there's quite a lot of scope to, to do different things. Um, you know, some people tether at the ankle, um, some people round, round the thigh with um, elastic lace and that sort of thing. We, we do something slightly different, um, which I've tried over a number of years, um, with different people, and, and I adapt my wetsuit. I have a little bit of Velcro um, on the wetsuit, and then I um, tie a, a, a Velcro strap around the outside um, through our tether loop. And um, it's a, a sort of relatively short tether so that I don't drift too far off course, and that helps me to keep in sync with Duncan. Um, and that seems to work really well because the tether can't slip, it can't go anywhere, and that's one of the problems sometimes in more choppy water um, or if you get a busy swim and people pull pull on the tether, it can can be dislodged and then that can really ruin your race, to be perfectly honest. So uh, I just find that security in in having the tether really fixed so it can't come off uh it is really useful.
1: Are you swimming, side, also by, a limitation. Are you, swimming yeah, side by side? You by side here then. Yeah, on that point, there's a, there's a limitation with where the athlete can be relative to the guy. They you know they That's they true. don't want to see any any pulling. So so Ian can't well for the short course, at least for the ITU-style racing, that even couldn't be on my feet, for example. But in Ironman, that is a little bit more flexible on that. So we tend to have a different tethering approach for the Ironman than we do for the ITU racing. Um, Mm -hmm. We're talking about trying to minimise energy expenditure. So head-to-tail positioning works best for Ironman, and it means you can thread yourself through busy swim packs and that sort of thing without lining people that you tend to do if you find yourself in a busy uh, a busy uh, swim pack um, and you swing side by side but side by side is how essentially side by side is how we tend to do it for the ITU racing
0: so what when you're when you're swimming then um side by side Ian are you if do you prefer to go on Duncan's right or on his left
2: um well um we were having this uh discussion the other week when we were training together, and uh, it's a bit like Anton Deck. I always prefer to be on his right hand side, um, and and the, the reason for that is primarily because I've got uh, poor vision on my left side. Uh, it's worse than my right eye, so I can perhaps see uh, other athletes coming and taking up our space if they're coming from my right. And having Duncan on my left, it kind of offers me a level of protection in the in the side that I don't have very good vision, um, and. I think also my left eye sits a bit off to one side, uh, to the left side. And that means I, I, with the little bit of vision I've got, I can actually see Duncan, even though I've got quite poor peripheral vision. Um, the fact the eye sits off to that side, it sort of compensates for that. Um, so it just means I can see him and that helps me to sync up, whereas I'd probably struggle if it was the other way around. So do you... Do you breathe to your left then and Duncan you breathe to your right and so you've got you've got uh, um, yeah. your opposite arms coming yeah. over at the same time or have have you got different cadences so we sync up the cadence so Duncan will basically set the cadence I will mm. sync into that whatever cadence that but I will actually breathe to the right away from Duncan because otherwise I just get a face full of water so yeah I'm always breathing away
1: mm. and I and like you say so I breathe to my right which works really well because I've got I've got eyes on him the whole time. So I can I can tell when he's starting to drift or or getting too close and we can we can make little micro adjustments accordingly.
0: Right. So your arms are still synchronized. So you're both breathing at the same time. Do you tend does that also mean that you have to have the same breathing pattern? So it's every it's every stroke? You're not doing bilateral?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm doing every two strokes to the right. Sorry, yeah. Um, yeah. But obviously that, that's different to what I would do if I was swimming solo. Um and it's different to what I would do if I was uh, positioned directly behind Dunk and I would go for every three. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And that's uh, I guess is that something you've to adapt as well, Duncan or is that no, your no, chosen? Unfortunately not
1: I mean that's that's my that's my preferred breathing pattern. Um, again comes back to that adaptability that Ian has, his ability to change up his swim stroke to
0: mm-hmm.
1: to suit what I'm doing. Um, so I think it's a bit like a metronome. You know, I, I kind of set, I set the, the rhythm of the, of the swim um, and Ian falls into that, uh, that pattern and it works really well. And what I hadn't really appreciated is until I saw some video of us the other day is that um, we are incredibly close. You know, I mean, we are literally inches apart and my, as our arms come over, my, I have quite a wide recovery with my right arm and it almost comes straight over the, over the top of Ian's head um and enters the water just in front but it, but I don't feed it at all you know I when we're when we're in sync and it's going well I, I have no I have no impression that Ian is is there causing me any real sort of um resistance that's when you know that we've really got it sort of nailed and it and it feels good and then occasionally you'll get like a a real tug and it's like someone's thrown a fridge on your back because it's got the, the tether's got snagged around somebody or or something's happened and a wave has tried to separate us. So you do get these kind of
0: mm.
1: periods where everything just feels perfect, interspersed with periods where you're just literally dead in the water and you and you have to sort yourself out and go again. Yeah. And and, that, and that's and that's less bad with Ian. It was, it was it was worse with Hassi. That was the, the, the bad times were more frequent than the good times with, with Hassi because he he was constantly something in, in a in a very peculiar um way, you know, not in a straight line or 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 moving off to one side, whereas Ian is 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 pretty straight. So when we're when we're synced up and going well, it's it feels really good.
0: Mm. Oh that's good. How much how much time do you actually spend training together these days? And how and has that changed at all during the sort of four years you've been working together?
2: I mean, in the past, we haven't really done any training at all together. We've, we've kind of rocked up at events, had a quick conversation about how we're going to do things and then just gone for it. And it's, it's worked out pretty well. Um, more recently, with the, the games in mind, we have been doing some sessions together and uh, I've been coming to, to Leicester uh, to spend a little bit of time with, with Duncan and uh, you know, doing the odd race and things like that. So, yeah, we, we are doing a bit more.
1: We focused a bit more in recent weeks, I si, on the on the on the technical aspects of, of the event. You know, I think we're we're we've we've got enough experience between us now that once we're actually racing, you know, be that something cycling or running, we're we're happy. Um we've we've arrived at some pretty good techniques for making sure we get the best out of each other. But we really felt that there was some some time to be to be gained in the sort of transitions and the in-between bits so that's you know getting on and off the tandem is a big one um and there's just you know over the sprint distance five seconds ten seconds they it adds up and all of a sudden there's half a minute you know so that's that's time that we can gain back just with being a little bit more slick on the uh on the transitions yeah i and think it, prior it's, to it's, um, sorry, Doug. sorry crack on, uh
2: it's you know f- things like finessing the swim technique and and working out you know if we can be maybe not quicker, but more efficient in certain ways. And, and that can save you energy for later in the race. And, and you're right, you know, these 10, 5, 10 seconds at a time, they do add up. And, and that's how I've won one or two world titles even, by just eking out a few seconds here and a few seconds there.
1: I think because we have we haven't done as much training together as you might imagine, just because we are, you know, separated by... By geography um, and and really our experience of of one another is is through racing. We've tend to to take a rather cautious approach to things like getting on and off the tandem. You know, it's it's, it's perhaps better to do things in a safe way, um, but one that's that's not risky. You know, that's not not going to risk losing a shoe or something like that, which would be kind of game over. So we've always taken a slightly more cautious approach, I think, to. Those technical aspects of the of, of racing, um, but those those are luxuries you maybe don't have. Um, but but even that, you know, there is, it's horses for courses. We'll take a we'll take an assessment of the of the race course, and if we feel, for example, that it's better for us to put our bike shoes on in transition and then run through transition in our bike shoes, and that's what we'll do. We'll we'll do whatever works best and whatever gives us the. You know, the quickest, safest result from A to B, and 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 take on those and do it like a risk risk assessment almost, if you like, of of which is the best way of doing things. Okay, well that's interesting. Those
0: and, and you're right. Uh, I suppose that that the higher the level you go, the the, the you know the the uh, more important those marginal gains are really from yeah, the little things. But
1: and I think it I think it applies to to solo racing as well. You you, you hear it so often. That you've got mm. relatively inexperienced people who see. Pros doing these super fancy, you know, flying mounts or <laughs> or starting the bike with their shoes attached to their pedals with an elastic band, and think, oh, that's what I need to do, you know. And then they come out of transition, and shoe flies off, and they're weaving all over the road, and and they and they cost themselves thirty seconds, you know. So it's it's working out what can you do, and can you do it to a level that's actually going to save you some time. So so you know, we have spent a lot more time recently. So cycling around in circles, just affecting those those aspects of the, of the race that could potentially save us a bit of time, but only only if we can do them, um, you know, without thinking and without and without risk of, of, of gaffing up, basically. Okay,
0: let's move on to the bike then. So you're riding a tandem. I presume you two are the same sort of fairly
1: similar build, are you? I'm on the front side. That was the next question.
0: No, it wasn't, but thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for reminding me. <laughs> um, but it would it's make awful. it it would make it very difficult to uh, to have a tandem if one of you you what you dunk six, one, six, two?
1: yes, yeah. um no, you're right. Uh, and again, it's um Ian Ian has used has used a lot of guides and and we have to sort of shoehorn them all onto the onto the same onto the same tandem. and and it's something else we spent a lot of time on in recent weeks, really dining that position, because that's another area where we think there is some gains to be made from an aerodynamic perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's typically speaking, the guy on the front has got the luxury of space. So there's, really, there's not really any restrictions on me getting into, into my optimum aerodynamic position. And then Ian has to work out the best way of, of positioning himself around me so as not to um, create... And any unnecessary drag, and inevitably that means a degree of compromise. You know, I I wouldn't want to ride on the back of the tandem. It looks the most uncomfortable thing to do ever. It
0: is. So, it is. Yeah. <laughs> is this the first time he's told you that?
1: No. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. Well, he has offered to swap a few times, but I've never actually uh, taken it up. So,
0: on I mean, is there a? You know, pardon my ignorance here, but is there a is there a size discrepancy between guide and? um blind athlete that wouldn't work on a tandem just because the, the you know the the engineering and all of that just
1: just wouldn't I, wouldn't be compatible. i would guess so i would think if you were riding a tandem generally you'd want to put the bigger person on the front i think just in terms of you know the way the bike would handle and certainly i i had it with hasib who's who's very small you know it felt like a set of panniers on the back of the bike it, i barely right. noticed him at all and i don't i do notice it a little more so with ian but but not so much as though it becomes a handful. Whereas if it was the other way around, I think you could imagine having, a, having more yeah. weight at the back would, would create a sort of handling um, issue with the, with the tandem for sure.
2: Yeah, and that, that is the traditional way around, is to have the heavier, uh, more sort of bigger pilot uh, person on the front as pilot and, and the smaller stoker on the back. But, you know, there are examples where that, that can work the other way around in, in paracycling, the pep uh, Bate and Duggleby you know, uh, Steve Bate is a monster. He's huge, and mm. Adam is quite small by comparison. And and they've been very successful. So it can work the other way around. But as a general rule, I do think it's better to have a a, a, a sort of larger, slightly heavier pilot than Stoker. And it gives mm. me, you know, something to hide behind, and and you know, a windbreak on the front is useful. So what um, what communication things are you doing? Because I
0: guess. It's all about trust for you, Ian. You have put your trust in that Duncan's uh, taking the correct line, but you definitely want to be setting yourself up position-wise for changes in direction, don't you? And cornering, um, you definitely don't. You don't want to be sitting up at the same time as Duncan's trying to lean the bike into a left-hand bend, for example.
2: No, uh, I mean a part of that is you know doing your course reccees and. Um, do, you know, once you've done a few laps of the course, uh, I, I'm able to build a bit of a visual map in my head and, and I can anticipate what's about to happen. But I'm also picking up on little cues. You know, Duncan might shuffle a little bit um, on the saddle. He might sit up fractionally just before a corner. Uh, he might change his his hand position. And, and so I, I'm picking up on those sort of things all the time, um, you know, because he's moving back into my space, for example. I'll pick that up and think, well, he's... he's we're, we're at this point on the course, it's a, it's a tight right hander. So um, there's a little bit of uh, that, little bit of anticipation, and and also you know Duncan he he will tell me if there's something really uh, challenging coming up, you know, a tight left turn or a U-turn, that kind of thing.
1: Uh, or any I mean, most of it has to be non-verbal in actual fact because yeah, when you're racing and you've got your you know your aero helmets on, you've got the wind noise, yeah. and, and unless it's something really significant. Then I then we just kind of communicate non-verbally. Um, I will communicate turns, but but I have to really shout. You know, it's it's not easy to hear one another over mm. the over the noise and the and the insulation from the from the helmet. So you have to work out a way of of uh, of communicating non-verbally. And as Ian says, most of it's just through my body language. Um, he can predict what I'm about to do, like things like coming up out of the saddle. You know, he'll be able to sense that um, and will be able to react accordingly. And if he if he senses that we're about to turn and he's been lucky enough to get a um an audio warning as well, then he will he will move into that turn with with the bike. Um what's what's worse is when it, it's being it, you're fighting one another. You know, if I'm trying to turn and Ian sat up well, or vice versa. And we actually had a had one of our first guiding experiences, to do, I think it was uh Ian Dorney and when we had the the national um and, <laughs> yes and, and we were coming f- I don't know if anyone's raced at Ian Dorney, but there's a there's a pretty much dead turn at the at the near part, not the far end where you go over the bridge, but as you come back into transition, there's a pretty much dead turn, and we were absolutely full gas into this turn, and I was shouting my head off that we were coming into this turn, and he clearly hadn't heard me because he was still full gas into this corner. I had the brakes on, which weren't really doing much. So we just had to kind of lean the bike over and pray that we got around the corner. And yeah, I, I think we, the,
2: we did clip the pedal, didn't I we? I remember the
1: pedals yeah. clipped, the bike lurched sideways. We bounced off the crash barrier, but by some miracle we actually um, ah. we got round. So so that's another danger to be aware of is that just because I'm slowing down on the front and, and coming off the gas, it doesn't necessarily mean that Ian's doing the same. He might still, it's like having a you know an engine behind you that's still running. As you're trying to slow the bike down into a corner, so um, yeah, it can be quite challenging on some um, tight technical courses. Just,
0: just on tandems, then the, the the gearing and the pedals are in sync, so it's for you, Duncan. If if Ian keeps pedalling, it's like you trying to break a fixed wheel bike. Is it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So
1: so every, so I'm in control of the of, of everything basically steering, gears, brakes. Um, but we're both in control of, of how much power is going into the bike. So I can, I can slow down, but if Ian chooses to, he can keep pedaling and I, and and I have no control over that. I mean, you'll feel the weight. He'll feel the weight of me slowing down and we'll, and and we'll therefore get the cue that, okay, we need to slow down. Um, And vice versa, if for whatever reason, Ian slows down, I will feel, I will feel that through the drivetrain. And when it's, when it's going well, you don't feel anything other than just a real sort of surge of power from, from the, from both engines,
0: I presume. Then that there's something in the rules that doesn't allow some sort of electronic communication through your head helmets.
1: I don't know about that. In actually, um, it's not something we've ever considered. But I think we sort of, um, yeah, we, we muddle through as uh, as best we can with the, with the communication we've got. And it's only really, I would say, on on super technical courses that that it that it can potentially become an issue.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not not allowed. Although I I do think it could be a viable adaption for para sport para triathlon for the bike leg because it's if it was between pilot and and stoker rather than getting outside information and time splits and mm. things like that mm. because it's not outside assistance it's just communication between mm. the the pair so i think there would be a good argument for it so
0: if i'm reading all of this right then there's got to be an almost like a telepathic relationship between the two of you that develops over time because the first two events that you talk, you know, the first discipline, swimming and cycling, there's pretty much no verbal communication
1: between you. Yeah, we've used the, we've used that word before actually, that sort of telepathic mm. communication. I don't want to sound sort of otherworldly, but there definitely is something that, you know we're able to kind of pick up on on very subtle cues from one another, um, and and I think that's the big difference for me between. Um, guiding Hasib, who's a B1, obviously, and Ian, who's a B3, although Ian's only got a very small amount of vision. I mean, 5% might seem like bugger all to your, your eyesight, but with that 5%, it's amazing what he's able to do. You know, mm. that that is a world apart from somebody who's completely blind. So yeah. being able to pick up on even just subtlety of shape, form, um, means that my job as a guide isn't quite so onerous. Um, it was definitely more challenging with Hasib um where he was completely reliant on me as a guide to give him every single little bit of information whereas um Ian Ian can get by on on a lot less and so I don't I don't overload him with information mm. that he doesn't that he doesn't need
0: but all all the best pairings regardless of whether in sport in entertainment in music you know even in marital relationships seem to have that emphasis on that that element of telepathy don't they where you know you sort of can almost second guess what the other person's going to say or do in a certain situation and that that's I don't know what that that it's almost otherworldly isn't it because you you can work on certain elements of it but it just there are just some people you gel with and some people you don't so I guess that the best partnerships in sport you know like tennis doubles or badminton doubles uh, have that element to them. And that's yeah, and I think that's successful. that's something
1: that, and I hope Ian all agree that we we quickly realised that we did work pretty well together as a as a pair, and I think that surprises a lot of people that you know we we don't do a huge amount of training together. Um, we've done what matters, and we've raced a lot together, um, and that seems to be enough. And we just seem to kind of we just seem to click as a as a as a sort of athletic pair. I think, and I think personality wise as well makes a big difference. Um, and it's not something I think perhaps the governing body focuses enough on with with guide selection. You know, it's a, a lot of it is about the, the physicality of the guide and what yeah. they're able to do, and um, you know how many watts they can put out yeah. on a watt bike, and and it's all that's all important, obviously. But also, I think personality is hugely important. You know, I think you can put two guides of very similar physical abilities side by side. And one will work really well with an athlete and one won't, you know, and one one will be able to get a much better performance out of an athlete than the other one will quite apart from their, their physical abilities. Um, and that was always neat when we, we got the call up for the, um, for the English team for the Commonwealth is that, um, Johnny Ryle obviously, um, Head of things there at the, at the BTF, saying we you know you guys come as a as a as a pair. You know we are a we are a team. We feel as though we work well together, and to put to put in with somebody else um certainly in the short term wouldn't wouldn't necessarily translate to better performance even if that person was was younger and stronger and faster than i am (laughs) and
2: and and at the end of the day we've you know we've got to spend a whole week together in birmingham so i think Mm. he's a real benefit if you do get on away from the racing as well as during the racing you know it just makes life easy so tell us about how the running works then ian Um, well, um, (laughs) so the running's not my strength. Um, you know, I think that that's pretty wide, widely known. Um, it's not something that comes easy. Um, but for, for us, what we, we use, um, for the short course, we use, um, a wrist tether. So it's, it's a very simple piece of, uh, material with two loops in it. Um, I generally have that in, in transition next to my shoes. I'll just pick that up, pop the loop on, then hand the other end to Duncan and off we go. Again, I will tend to stick on on the right-hand side uh, of Duncan um, for similar reasons to the swimming, really, due, due to sort of my, my left eye being poor and my right eye being better. Um, it just sort of means I can pick out the odd obstacle myself uh, on, on the, my right side and uh, Duncan can sort of take care of everything else. Um, and it is really just running side by side and um, essentially – I have to set the pace. There's no polling allowed. Um, Duncan can give lots of information, encouragement and, you know, uh, he's a a very good runner. So uh, probably my run speed is quite easy for him. But of course, he's already worked hard on the bike. So uh, he needs to be able to save a little bit of energy so he can actually still talk and give information. Uh, But for me, I won't be responding much. It's just a case of getting around there as fast as possible and, and doing what I can. On mm. on that last last leg of the event,
0: what happens if one of you's having a bad day? I mean, what happens if you know Ian's going for a medal, Duncan, and you're having a bad day and you really yeah. struggle? I mean, you've you've just it's got to you've just got to put up and shut up, haven't you? Yeah,
1: it's a real concern. I think it's, it's never something I've really considered um, over the short course because I mean, you know, it's a, it's a short event. Um, it shouldn't be It shouldn't be something that becomes an issue um, on race day. You know, if you prepared well. Uh-huh. And even if you're having a bad day, chances are you can kind of, you can muddle through and you can get through the event. But, um, but for Ironman, it's a very, very real possibility, you know, that you could have a bad day. You could, and this is something I I experienced with, with Hasib, is that you spend so much time making sure the athlete is okay, um, looking after their nutrition, particularly so with the B1 athletes. You have to be the one that passes all their nutrition to them, um, stopping at aid stations, you're, they're your first concern. You're less worried about yourself, um, and that can be an issue. You know, longer term, when you get into the into the meat of the of the marathon, if you've not done what you need to do on the bike and looked after yourself, then it then it can get quite can get quite tricky. Um, certainly, when we raced over the Ironman distance in Estonia, you know, I I did feel the marathon was was tougher for me than usual, possibly because. I wasn't able to dedicate as much time to myself on the bike, um, making sure that I was meeting my own needs, which is you know something that you kind of you obviously do when you're racing solo. Um, But but less of an issue certainly in the in the sprint stuff.
0: Do you? I mean, you race as a pair. You get awarded medals as a pair, assuming you get into that position. Do you share the expenses, or is it is it is it about your race Ian? Because you're you're the actual athlete that's been selected and Duncan's your guide?
2: Well, I mean it's very much a team event, but in terms of the expenses, I, I traditionally have tried to cover most costs for, for the guides that I've raced with over the years, and it, I think it's just Something I always wanted to do, um, you know, I've done extra work to try and pay for, for events and, and cover the costs as best as possible um, because, you know, the guys are giving up their time, their holiday from work potentially. Um, they're giving up their own racing opportunities a lot of the time and uh, I don't really want it to cost the money on top of that. So, um, But, you know, I think certain events are different. You know, perhaps some of the, the events we pick as a, a target together might be slightly different. Whereas if it's something I say, oh, I really want to do this event, you know, and some who's going to, who's willing to race for me, I, in those circumstances, I would definitely want to cover the costs.
1: Yeah, and if we ever get to Kona, Ian's definitely picking up the tap.
2: Yeah, well, I'm just thinking about the bike there. I mean, bike,
0: <laughs> the type of bike you have and the colour of the frame. I mean, that can mean to Some people, but it didn't sound like you've got much
1: choice in that, really, Duncan. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Although um, I have enjoyed spending a bit of time recently tweaking the uh the tandem and getting it all set up for the uh for the commies in a in a few weeks' time.
0: Mm. Well, let's talk about the Commonwealth games then. So um sprint distance. Yes. Yeah. Um who's your main competition? I mean, I'm presuming here that you guys are going for a medal.
2: Well, I I think we're going to do uh the best performance we can and see where it gets us. You mm-hmm. know, I think both Duncan and I are quite realistic that at our age, the fact that we both work full time and the sport, as Duncan mentioned earlier, has moved on significantly in the last few years. Mm. Um, A medal probably will be a stretch. Um, We don't actually know what the start uh, list looks like yet. That doesn't seem to have been published. Um, But, you know, I'd obviously expect um, Dave Ellis and Luke, his guide, uh, to be up there. Uh, pushing for the win, I'd expect Oscar and Charlie to be there or thereabouts, um, and I, I'd expect some serious competition from Australia, who probably be bringing three athletes. Uh, and then, you know, you've got countries like South Africa who may bring a couple of athletes, uh, and and you know there'll be some other nations. I think there's a young uh, guy from Ireland, hopefully will also be racing. So it's going to be a tough one for us, and and of course our friends from from Wales. Uh, Reese and Reese, um, you know. So I think for us, it, we're just going to try and get in the mix and see where we we end up at the end of it.
0: Bit mm-hmm.
2: exciting, now. I mean, mm. you, you are, are you excited or nervous or equal amounts of both? Um, I'm not particularly nervous. I think perhaps that comes with age and and experience. I I feel quite calm about it, and uh, you know, uh, I'm certainly excited to get out there and race and and. I think it's going to be a great atmosphere. So it's it's really something to look forward to. How about you?
1: David? Another, yeah, it? that's another thing that, that comes across um, racing with Ian. We, and we talked about personality types. I think we're quite we're both quite chilled as well. Um, racing doesn't really favor us. And I think because Ian has operated at the sort of very highest level of sport, you know, he mentioned that he'd been to the um, Paralympic Games as a cyclist before his triathlon career started. And he's he's used to operating on, on a sort of pretty... Um, serious competitive level um and and for me it's a luxury you know because i'm in a race where there's only 10 other pairings i've got space in the swim I've, you know got a nice blue carpet in transition <laughs> these are all luxuries that i'm really not used to so uh it's all good and, uh, and we and i don't think either of us really honestly felt as though we we pull this off um but circumstances kind of conspired and and here we are so we're going to make the absolute most of it and uh and enjoy every minute. And I think it'd be a straight. It would be a real shame to, to just tie ourselves up in knots or get super nervous and, uh, and and ruin the experience. So we're we're fully intending to to get as much out of it as we can and enjoy yeah. as much. We can.
2: I, I mean, at the end of the day, we've got absolutely nothing to lose. Given we weren't really expected to go to the games at all, so we're just going to yeah. go and give it a whirl and uh, hopefully hopefully have a good race. Yeah. And what, what's what's the date and time of your event then? Uh, 31st of July at uh, 11
0: a.m. I'm gonna I'm gonna do my very best to make sure this podcast goes out before then, so we can give it a bit of a bit of a flyer.
1: Yeah, it'd be good. And I think the uh, I think the triathlon event is is free to view. I mean, there are there were I say that there were tickets. There aren't any more because they all sold out. But um, grandstand tickets were available. But the, but the event itself is free to view. If you want to get yourself into Sutton Park or around Sutton Park, the roads around Sutton Park. The bike course is a, is a five-lapper, five-lap race, so I'll be loads to see. Even if you get yourself out into the streets around Boldmere and, and Sutton Park, plenty to see. And I believe there's also the mixed triathlon relay on the same same day, same session. So it'll just be a good day of triathlon. You know, you'll get to see the the PTVIs, male and female, and you'll get to see the uh, the mixed triathlon relay, um, and it'll be a super exciting day. I mean, seeing triathlon. Paratriathon and the and the tandems going by at full chat is pretty exciting.
0: I imagine that most of your friends will the bought all those tickets, will they,
1: Dunk? the <laughs> well, remainder actually, of them your friends. Uh, we um, we we get a few reserve tickets as as athletes. Wow. So they've been really, really good and really lucky to have got those because they were like um gold dust. They were really, really sought after. I think they're sold out very quickly. So there's, I think there's an outside chance to grab tickets on the day because some of the reserve tickets to athletes, if they don't get claimed, they get thrown back into the uh
0: mm-hmm.
1: into the pot. So if you're lucky enough, you you may be able to grab a ticket. But um yeah, it seems pretty unlikely, I'd say.
0: You've you've done the GBH group thing, haven't you, yeah,
1: Duncan? You've you've raced Yeah, I did a I did a couple. Yeah? yeah, a couple I did a couple in the back in the early days in the early 90s. Um uh short and long course. And and I think Ian also done um, every single level, you know, from European through to worlds as well. Wow.
2: Yeah, I haven't, I haven't raced Age group, as such, um, um, you know, I think that might freak a few people out, yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, certainly, certainly been around a while now. Yeah,
0: you know, there's always a debate on the various triathlon forms, isn't there? That Duncan and I hang out about how dare those elite athletes come back and uh, get in our yeah. way, but of course, there's another debate, Duncan, about when you've represented GB age group, should you wear your GB vest or shirt to um, <laughs> another? Uh, yes, lesser yes. racer. So, so, what are you going to do about your Commonwealth? Um,
1: kit? Well, that's it. You yeah, know, I've I've I think I've done a GBH um twice, um, and I've worn my GBH group kit twice. <laughs> so that answers that question for you. But um, yeah, it might find itself uh, in a in a picture frame, maybe or, yeah. or something like that. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. best mechanical wishes to both of you. Uh, it's going to be fabulous. I make sure I'm tuned in for that, and. Uh, yeah, have the best race and the best day and the best experience you can
1: brilliant thanks Simon make sure of it
0: thanks very much really appreciate you guys being here take care now no problem
1: Ta-da. bye
0: thank you again to Ian and Duncan for being guests on this week's High Performance Human podcast of course we wish them all the best at the weekend as usual there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below To make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and press the subscribe button. Also, don't forget to look out for that link in the show notes so you can download your free case study if you want to find out about the simple formula I use to help athletes like you excel at their first long distance triathlon. That's all for this week. I hope you have a great weekend and I will see you on the next episode.